Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, welcome back to Ausbiz. My name is Andrew Page and you have tuned in just in time for the call. And I am super psyched today because we have a wonderful list of stocks to get through. So not much of a preamble today because I'm just really keen to get into them all. But before we do that, let's introduce our two expert guests. We've got Rob Corlett from Macro Capital in the studio. Happy New Year, Rob. Happy New Year to you too. Good to do the show with you. The first time. Yep. First one. I'm going to throw you some curly ones and uh, oh. t- test the metal there. Bring it on. <laughs> nice one. And uh, down in Melbourne, we've got Owen Raskovitz from Rask Australia, a longtime friend and a former colleague. Always good to see your face there. Owen, how are you going? It's great to be on the show, Andrew. Happy New Year. Nice one, mate. I know that you're going to like our stock of the day because it's one that you and I have talked about extensively in the past. And uh, when choosing a stock of the day, before we get to the 10 stocks that, that our viewers have, have uh, chosen, of course, we had to go with ProMedicus. Yet another big deal, seven-year deal, $40 million with Intermountain Healthcare over in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's a pretty good deal, Owen. Uh, it's hard to sneeze at that, although I guess critics will point out some other aspects that are a little harder to wrap your head around. Uh, and full disclosure here, I think you are a shareholder and, and I am a shareholder as well. But you're looking at a company on a price to sales of, of about 60 and a PE, of 150, uh, is it too expensive at this point? Well, I think we've been saying that, Andrew, you and I for about five years now, and we've held on to some shares. I would say that Prometicus has the price tag to match its quality. I think it's the highest quality company on the ASX, to be frank. Um, so I'm fortunate to be a long-term shareholder, but you're right, You know, this is a big deal, uh, this, this new contract win. I think it's the fifth and sixth months Pretty substantial one, I've got to add. Um, but price tag, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it with a two in front of it, that share price before buying more shares. Yeah, I, I hear that. Uh, Rob, what do, you, what do you reckon about a company like this? It seems in, this isn't just an issue with Prometicus, but any sort of business that I, most people will agree is high quality, you have to pay up for. You do. So what do you do? I mean, people have been waiting to buy this for a long time. I actually got a pretty good opportunity in March of last year, but barring that, it hasn't been too many opportunities. Do you bite the bullet or do you just wait longer? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, Prometicus is actually up at the top of the range, all-time highs it's hitting today. It's up 12, 13% now based on the announcement. So obviously the market likes it. Um, look, we, we try and get a handle on what institutional investors might be doing. Uh, that's most easily seen through use of a 200-day moving average, which Prometicus has been able to uh, stay above for most of the time that's been trading. So, uh, you know, for people who understand that you do have to pay up, uh, we'd be comfortable actually accumulating Prometicus. I'm not sure if you will see it below $30 again. Um, I think you'd need something to go quite wrong for the stock uh, to be down there. So I'd actually prefer to be paying up now, knowing the story's good, rather than having a limit order in the market that maybe gets filled when things have changed and I don't really want to be holding the stock then. So 
um, yeah, look, I'd be looking to uh, move into the stock in the next couple of days. Yeah, speaking about uh, being a little bit too fussy or perhaps a little bit too clever by half, one of my major regrets with any decent win has been selling on valuation concerns. Right, yeah. So as Owen said, yeah, I've still got some shares, but I would have a lot more if I wasn't so fussy about that price. So it's something that does does irk me a little bit there. So there's our stock of the day. Before we move on to our other 10 stocks, I'm, uh, I have to mention that we've got Sam Huppert, the CEO of ProMedicus, will be on the show tomorrow at 3.30 Sydney time. Uh, and no doubt we're going to go through these, this latest deal and a bit of an overview of the company as well. So if you're interested in ProMedicus, make sure you do tune in at Ausbiz tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. Sydney time. Okay, with that out of the way, as I said, we've got 10 stocks that have been selected by you, our viewers. And remember, if you've got any burning questions, make sure you do send them to us. But I'm really excited about the ones that have been sent out, sent in today. Some really, really high quality stocks. We're going to start, Rob, with a nice big blue chip stock been around forever in a day. Uh, I'm talking about Wes Farmers here. Dean has sent it in. Now this is a business that's mostly Bunnings these days, that's Rob. Right. And we saw in the most recent October sales update, the company talking about a 25% year-to-date jump in sales. Yep. So we might have all been in lockdown, but uh, plenty of home renovations that's going right. on. Uh, what do you think about the business? Yeah, look, we'd look at uh, Wes Farmers. First of all, I think we need to say that, you know, five, ten years ago, you'd look at Coles, you look at Wes Farmers, uh, or Coles and Woolworths in those days, yep. uh, and you'd say that they are generational stocks. You know, grand, granddad would buy and pass down to the grandkids, etc. Um, that thematic's changed. Uh, we saw that with Audi coming out here. We had a couple of German, um, you know, staples come out here. They subsequently left just before COVID. I think once uh, the environment is sorted, uh, they'll come back out again mm -hmm. and put a lot of pressure on the, the staples uh, sections of the, the market. Um, having said that, obviously we know that Coles has spun off from, from West Farmers. Um, so with West Farmers, as you said, now all you're really getting is uh, Bunnings, Kmart, Officeworks, etc. Um, they did note that um, their Kmart business had some supply chain issues mm. uh, due to COVID, yep. getting the product from the warehouse to the store. Um, and they did, as you said, uh, have good numbers out there for Bunnings. Um, look, that is that whole nesting trade that was going on that was doing, you know, making a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. Um, our view is that um, the market may be expecting that the Bunnings number continues, mm -hmm. where we're thinking that once the COVID environment starts to roll back again, there'll be a more of a normalising uh, of the sales figures coming out of Bunnings. So uh, at this stage, we're thinking it's probably fully um, valued and we'd probably actually be looking at it from the sell side, just lightening it gently. Okay, uh, so, so a hold leaning to a sell, uh, yeah. reducing some exposure there. Yeah. Oh, and what do you reckon? I mean, uh, some, some nice, a uh, very nice business, let's be honest, in Bunnings. Target and Kmart less so. Um, and we're looking at a business here whose compound annual growth rate and earnings has been around 5%, nothing to sneeze at. Um, but not as high as some of the tech high flyers that are out there. Is it the kind of business that gets you interested? I think there are a few names in today's list and, and West Farmers is one of them where I think, let's go back to first principles. And I think, why are we buying this investment? Why would we be making this investment? And for me, it's a, a very reliable business. Obviously the, the old school conglomerate, if you like, um, it can pull capital from certain parts of its business and push that into other parts. And um, I'm particularly excited to see what the management team does with the capital that has available now that it's light and load with Coles. I think that might be, you know, that kind of option that isn't really baked into the current price. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've seen some strong um, performance from Bunnings. I mean, down here in Victoria, trying to get something from Bunnings was next to impossible. Uh, the only way was to fake a, uh, a PowerPass card and go in and try and get something as a tradie, <laughs> air quotes. 
Um, but I think I don't see you know Bunnings' position in the the West Farmers conglomerate changing that much over the next five to ten years. I think it's going to be a staple within the business that can allow it to do other things and kind of flex its balance sheet, which it's now got a bit of you know dry powder that it can do that with. Um, I think when we talk about Kmart and Target, I think Target has forever and a day been in a pretty tough position. Yeah. It's been sandwiched, you know, by the low cost, the truly low cost big box retailers like um, like Kmart itself. So it's kind of cannibalizing its own business. And so it was only a matter of time before Target kind of had to make that hard call. Do we just fold it into Kmart? Do we do something, you know, half half where we sell some? And they've gone with the sell some, keep some approach. Um, I like West Farmers as a business. I think it's a great business. I just probably wouldn't be buying at these levels, Andrew. Mm, yeah, no, I, I hear you there. And uh, very interesting comments you make too on the optionality that they have there. It is a bit of a bet on what uh, capital allocation skills management have. And historically, they've got some pretty good ones. But Dean, uh, we couldn't get that one over the line from our two experts. Oh, and I'm going to give you first crack of the next one because I believe it's one you've recommended uh, in the past over there at RASC. I'm talking about RPM Global. R-U-L is the code. John has written in. Now, the thing with this is that they are you know, historically a consulting business, but now a lot of software business in the mining space as well. And I think that's the real growth engine of the business. Do you still like it? Yes, in short, still like it. So I think it's, um, I think it's a good uh, viewer stock and a good viewer pick. I would caution, though, that it is quite a small business. Even though the balance sheet is pretty strong for a small technology business, um, you'd want to be mindful that it can be quite volatile because it is so small. But yeah, we've held it. Well, I've held it for quite some time, and I continue to own it. I think it's surprisingly high quality in the mining services space or mining software space. A lot of people, Andrew, thought about this company being decades old. They thought, you know, this is just an old school. Um, advisory, mining consultant type business. We're going to get low margins. It's going to be cyclical. It's going to be hit by commodity prices. Mm. But at around about 2012, 2013, Richard Matthews, who's the current CEO, and he's an ERP veteran, so enterprise resource planning software veteran, he looked mm. at this business and he said, what can we do with the technology stack that is currently available in the business? And what is currently available in industry? And how can we kind of you know, take it forward? Because mining... The mining industry, is, as Matthews describes it, is kind of the fast follower. So they wait for someone else. They wait for the Rio Tinto or the BHP to do something before all of the other miners jump on board and adopt that software or that workflow. But right. what RPM has done is throughout all of this you know, turmoil and commodity prices, particularly coal, it has kept reinvesting. And around three or four years ago, you could have looked at RPM Global and said, you know, in the segment report of the annual report, it actually shows that the software business is profitable. It's the advisory business that is just weighing it down. And so I still think that, that people are still missing that, that the, the, the subscription business that is selling software to mines for design and for scheduling is actually still really profitable and it's growing. So I like it. Do you think there's a chance, Owen, of a bit of a spin-off at some point in time or the, the management just sort of happy to keep it in the stable? Well, this is one that I've asked myself too, Andrew, because I thought, well, why don't we get rid of that? And then there'll be a re-rating in the market because people will no longer see it as an advisory business. But I think this is is an important relationship that people need to understand. In my opinion, that advisory business and what it principally does is it consults on M&A deals. It helps miners make better decisions with where they're going to put a mine, how they're going to operate it, etc. I think that for now, at least for the foreseeable future, is the foot in the door to sell the software. Ah. And so if the software is sold on three to five year subscriptions, you know, it makes sense to have this kind of this tugboat hanging around, get us in the door, 
we'll sell the subscriptions and maybe in a few years, once we're off the ground, we can, we can afford to offload that part of the business. Well, Rob, we can see on the screen there, what, 35 cents to $1.35 in, in five mm -hmm. years. It hasn't been a bad run at all. Uh, is it something that you'd be buying today? Yeah, we'd actually be interested in this one. I think uh, Owen makes a very good point about the um, introduction of the, the new management around 2013. Uh, detractors might look at it and say, well, look, revenue really hasn't grown over that seven-year period. Uh, revenue, I think, was about 78.5 million back then. It's 78.8 million now. But what we are seeing is this big transition away from that advisory business that has the smaller margins into the software component that has the larger margins. So uh, the software business accounts for 62% of revenue. Um, so obviously that's growing. Uh, the advisory section has now fallen down to about 33% revenue. Gotcha. Um, they do do a lot of acquisitions. Uh, they made acqu eight acquisitions last year. Um, they've spent another 3.3 million already in the first um, quarter this year. Uh, sorry, that's a contract win there, 3.3 million. Yep. Uh, and they've got annual recurring revenue now up to uh, 13.5 million. So um, this transition of the business into a software um, based business where you'll get that annual recurring revenue uh, with, with much higher margins is very attractive. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go, John. That's two thumbs up from our two experts. And that is relevant for reasons I will explain at the halfway mark. And uh, regular viewers will know what I'm talking about, of course. Rob, this one uh, is for you to kick off. This is a, a little company, or perhaps not so little anymore. It's called Objective Corp. Cyrus wants to know what they should do with it. One thing that, that I, I think is really interesting to point out with this business is it's been uh, it's run by the founder, high inside ownership. And to me, it's a masterclass in capital allocation. Back in the GFC when shares plummeted, they bought back a whole bunch of their shares. So not only, and, and basically because of the recurring nature of their, their revenues, they didn't take a hit on any of that. Uh, and so not only did earnings grow because of the leverage in the business, but because of the reduced share count. On this show, we're always talking about dilution with added shares. This is the exact opposite. Um, and so they have just knocked it out of the park. And the other thing that's interesting is they've had very, very strong and consistent growth, which has all been funded by internal cash flow. So I think on that basis alone, it does very, very well. However, and this is the point that we made uh, earlier, you are paying up for it. I had a quick Quick check, uh, the PEs are over 110, I believe. Yep, yep. Uh, does that make it a bit harder? Look, it is difficult in the sense that uh, the sector P ratio is at 37, as you said, we've got it at about 112. Uh, good margins in the business though, 25.3%. Uh, great growth Huge. last year. We mm -hmm. had double digit uh, growth in revenue, EBITDA, NPAT, even their divi uh, popped up 40%. Uh, it is a quite thinly held uh, stock. I think uh, TP, TBW Group uh, are the major shareholders. They own 66% of the company. Um, Look, what we're seeing is some very smart uh, acquisitions again. They recently uh, bought a company called iTree for $18.5 million. Yep. Uh, that's expected to have generated or to generate $14 million this financial year with $8 million in reoccurring revenue. So, um, you know, from our perspective, yes, you know, you are paying top of the range here. But uh, the business so far has just gone from strength to strength. Seems like it's got a good clued up management of, of making sure that shareholders get optimal value. You know, when the share price is down and if you think that's undervalued and you've got, you know, excess cash, you've got good cash flows and yeah. um, making those uh, on market purchases of stock and then cancelling the stock is good for everyone. It's really nice. Look at that chart there. You can see the liquid nature of the shares, but you can also mm. see the phenomenal wealth creation over that period of time. Per share earnings growth is uh, compounded about 20 cent 
20% per annum on average over the last 10 years or so. Owen, what do you reckon about this one? I, I might be wrong on this, but from memory, I believe they actually expense a lot of their R&D as well, which is always nice to mm. see. Does, uh, does this one tick any boxes for you? I think it ticks almost all of them, Andrew. Um, I, I think there are a select few, and we've a select few technology companies in Australia that you know are just first class, and I think this one is up there. Um, I think you know when you have high insider ownership and when you have um, significant shareholders in the business, that can actually be to the advantage of small shareholders because we don't have to necessarily worry about you know what a big fund is going to do or how illiquid we need to be to get in and out of this position. We can just you know buy two. $5,000, $10,000, whatever it may be, we can buy a small position and the liquidity um, can actually create an advantage for us because we can just get in and out of positions. Um, so the business, I like it, I really like it because it is so sticky. It embeds in traditionally bureaucratic organizations like local councils and, mm. and government organizations, which everyone knows aren't the most efficient or effective places to uh, get anything in or out of. And this is where the business specializes, right? It can effectively take data or take information. It can take PowerPoint slides, whatever you think you need to get across the organization to a stakeholder. It can do that securely and effectively. And the way the business is set up to sell into these organizations actually means that it's very, very sticky. So from one year to the next, the earnings are very predictable. And I think that's part of the reason why you get that kind of multiple expansion that we've seen recently because once you see the revenue come up and the, the, the margins are very wide, a lot of that, that extra revenue, that's that incremental revenue just falls straight to the bottom line and then people jump onto that and they think, well, this is actually pretty predictable. And so we kind of have this two-pronged effect where things just feed on themselves and it grows. Management reinvest a lot back into R&D, just to your point, Andrew. Um, that leads to better widgets and better add-ons for the, for the core platforms, which then leads to more customers which leads to more cross-selling, um, better margins. So this is just a vicious cycle. I Just in summary, I would say that if I was going to buy some today, I would buy a small, very small slice from my portfolio, um, just given the valuation. I'm going to have to press you on this one though. For the purposes of the call, Owen, are you going to call it a buy or a sell or a hold? Uh, uh, I'll give it a buy, mate. I think, it's, I think it's deserving. I think it's high, high enough quality. We often mention it on the show too, for those uh, viewing at home, remember there is always context around what our uh, investors here are saying. So make sure you do uh, keep that in mind. There'll be buys from over a range of different stocks, but some might be classed as a speculative buy, as Owen's just hinted there. Maybe you might not put as your full allocation into that. So I can't stress that enough context matters. But but for the purposes of this show and for the purposes of the portfolio that we run, we just got two thumbs up. Let's now talk, oh, and I'm gonna stay with you here. We're gonna talk about Spark. Uh, SPK is the code. Don wants to know, what does he do with this NZ-based telco? Yeah, it's a, it's a name that doesn't come across my desk very often, I've gotta be honest, Andrew. Um, and th there are a few reasons for that, but principally, the reason is that when I'm looking to invest, again, if we come back to first principles, one thing that's really appealing with Spark is the dividend. It's very consistent. Mm -hmm. Being an effective, you know, it's a utility business. It can maintain high levels of debt. And effectively, what its principal purpose is for an investor, I believe, is to get those dividend checks just rolling out of it. And um, we've seen in recent years that, you know, the top line hasn't really budged. The company has begun to transform its business, becoming simpler, becoming leaner, more agile. But 
for me, it's the type of business that I tend to avoid because if I'm looking for an income play, I'd rather get a diversified income play. You know, I'd rather get a, a basket, you know, an ETF or a managed fund to deliver that income rather than this type of uh, exposure. That said, a 5% dividend yield in this environment with interest rates so low, um, any sort of growth that the business can achieve from this efficiency that it's undertaking, these efficiency uh, moves, are, are going to be well rewarded by the market. And we've seen, um, it's, it's, I think it's in the top decile over the past three years amongst this peer group for um, total shareholder returns. So it's not just uh, necessarily that income piece. You know, there is a, a small amount of, I guess, capital gains that you could expect. So I'm going to just keep it as a hold. A hold. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Rob, Owen making some excellent points there. The dividend's been, look, there hasn't been much growth in the dividend in recent years, no. but you are getting uh, 5%. Now, uh, you're not getting any franking credits with that, I believe, as well. Is 5% enough to get you over the line? No, um, no. we'd agree this is a hold for us. Uh, doesn't spark our interest. Um, you know, revenue is, uh, sorry, it's very bad. Uh, <laughs> no, it completely went over my head. Re revenue, um, nice. you know, growth was only 2%. EBITDA was 0.5%. Uh, net profit growth was 4.4%. So not seeing the growth. We're actually a little bit concerned about the uh, dividends. Uh, we're, we're seeing the dividend payout ratio now over 100%. Um, so f there's potential that maybe they're, they're going to run into some trouble, like uh, Telstra ran into some trouble many years ago with mm. trying to maintain their really high dividend. Uh, Telstra is probably more where we'd be interested, um, given that they might actually even do a split uh, internally of their business. So, yeah, Spark for us is, is not something we're interested in. Uh, it's an excellent point you make, and that, that analogy with, with Telstra is an interesting one. Even for the most income-focused of operations, you do need to keep some aside, A, for a rainy day, and B, you've, you've got to maintain operations and, and even spur a little bit of growth for the future. If you're paying out every last cent, yeah. It's hard to do. What have you got? You know, sooner or later, something is, is going to give. So, Don, I hope that's given you a bit of uh, useful perspective there. Uh, hold from each of our experts. Now, let's talk about CSL. Uh, Rob, this one's for you to start off with. CSL comes up a lot on the show and probably for good reason. This is a business, I mean, its earnings have compounded at 16% per annum on average over the last 10 years. If you go back 20 years, 30 years, it's just, it's that one, if you jumped in a time machine, you would, you would, you know, bet everything on it because it's done so incredibly well. But what's interesting, I, I notice about it, just looking at the, uh, the forecasts out there and forecast to forecast, but for whatever it's worth, the consensus has these earnings growing only at about six or 7% per annum over the next three years. And yet the PE is on 40. Is this another case of, yes, it's a little bit pricey, but we're in a low interest rate environment and it's just super, super rock solid and high quality? Or is there something else to be said? Yeah, uh, CSL for mine is one of the top companies listed on the ASX. I think you, you take this opportunity to add it to your portfolio. Uh, anything under $300, I think, is an easy buy for us. Um, you know, we're seeing a few things at the moment. They've got 50% uh, revenue coming out of the US. Uh, we've got Biden with his stimulus package about to be announced. So that's uh, widely thought to be um, going to put pressure on the US dollar. So um, there'll be some issues there. Um, we've seen in November they had a, a peak in foot traffic for plasma donations. 
uh, and so with this COVID Mark II, you know, now now going around the place, uh, we're expecting that those donation rates will start to fall. So that'll be a, you know impact them negatively. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just such a great business. There's such a high barrier to entry uh, for its competitors. Uh, they dominate the space. Uh, I think you just use the short-term fear. Maybe some some uh, investors who aren't looking to hold it for that long term, you know, five ten years. Uh, and use it as a buying opportunity. So yeah, we would definitely get invested at this level. What do you reckon, uh, Owen? I know, because this, as I said, this one comes up a lot. And uh, for those that do say they really like it, just not the price, the next thing that they usually say is, well, what you do is you buy on weakness. Well, to Rob's point, you've got weakness. Uh, Is it weak enough, I suppose, is the question. Yeah, that's always the question with CSL, isn't it? It's one of those staples in so many portfolios. What I've always found interesting with CSL, and this is not necessarily something to knock it, it's just something to be mindful of, is that there are effectively two ways for businesses to really impress shareholders. And the first is through operating leverage. And that's where the the business becomes more profitable as it grows. So revenues go up, but profits go up faster and dividends follow. The other way that you can really impress shareholders and earn big bonuses is if you add financial leverage to your business. And so we've seen many of the most impressive companies around the world go to debt markets and get um, lots and lots of debt and put it into their business and then talk about returns on equity or ROE because ROE Mm. doesn't factor in the capital that comes from debt. So this is just something that you would want to be mindful of. It's just the amount of debt that CSL is taking on. I think, you know, to Rob's point, um, I pretty much agree with all of them. Um, It's the type of business you buy when it's down and it's a a fortress-like business um, it can sustain that debt, but it's just something to be mindful of when you're looking at the metrics and, and you're judging how profitable is this business. It's just be mindful of that net debt creeping up in the background and just consider how long you think that can last. Um, I think, you know, tremendous business, high quality deserves to be, and I'm, I'm proud that it's one of the, the biggest companies on the ASX. But for me, I would probably say it's a hold. I know that's quite contentious, but um, just on valuation grounds, I think there are other places you can put your money. Uh, some excellent comments there. I find one thing I find really interesting about these super uh, high performance, high quality, long term wealth generating kind of companies is that even in a case uh, like CSL, where you look at that earnings history, uh, it's a it's pretty much a, a staircase. It's just perfectly. Uh, it just goes up like clockwork every year. That might belie the fact that shares are still really volatile. So even when you, I mean, shares full stop a volatile, but it's no exception for the high quality businesses. So I think one of the lessons that you sort of see by following a stock longer term is the people who have really done well on this, like really well, are those that have bought and just managed to sort of keep their eye on the horizon and and, and work through that volatility, which is a given. And and I can speak from experience here, those that try to be a bit clever and buy and sell and buy and sell around uh, a lot of that volatility doesn't always work out and there are tax considerations there as well. So just something to think about if you do happen to be leaning on that longer term uh, investment spectrum. Gents, this is a first for the show. We're actually hit our first five stocks and we are ahead of time. That is a miracle. I can see my producer got him falling off his chair. So let's go through the uh, the first five stocks. We started with Prometicus uh, and that got uh, two ticks uh, from the guys not too concerned about, well, there are some, some uh, things to note in terms of that valuation, but the business, very high quality. Owen, in fact, calling it, big call here, one of the highest quality, in fact, the highest quality business on the ASX. And, you know, it's, it's not hard to, to uh, it's 
fault him on that. So two ticks there. Then we went to West Farmers, which was sent in by Dean. Very high quality company, very good quality management, a uh, bit of potential there with some uh, cash on the balance sheet, but it is a hold at this point in time, according to the two gents. In fact, Rob leaning towards a bit of a sell. So if you've got some, maybe you want to lighten the load a little bit there. We then discussed RPM Global, uh, and the real jewel in the crown for this business is their software business, which they have just uh, prosecuted very, very well indeed. And so that got uh, a double thumbs up. And I said at the time that that matters because it is already in the portfolio that we run here at the call, which means after today, it's gonna stay in. We then talked about Objective Corp. Uh, Cyrus sent that one in. Objective Corp uh, software for councils and big enterprises, uh, very sticky, very uh, uh, wonderful managers of capital, wonderful wealth creation there over the long term. Again, the PE is up there, but uh, didn't put our two experts off, both who are happy to call that a buy that isn't in the portfolio, but at the end of trade today, that will change. It's going in. Uh, we then spoke about Spark. Now, this is a business that uh, I think in terms of uh, income, that's got to be your focus here, as, as Owen rightly pointed out. But as Rob also pointed out here, they're paying out pretty much all, everything that they earn there. There's not much left uh, over for that. And uh, both gents were a hold on that basis. And then we got to CSL. And uh, this one was also in the portfolio until my good friend Owen just kicked it out uh, unwittingly. So this one's on you, Owen. We'll see, we'll see whether or not that was the right call. Uh, but uh, Rob is actually, in fact, happy enough to say that, look, anything below 300 is a good buying opportunity. Uh, Owen, to be fair, nothing critical to say about the business, but would prefer a slightly lower price. So that one is out. Let's have a look at that portfolio I just mentioned there. Regular viewers will know that we've been running that since July 1, 2020, and what a performance it has been over that time in excess of 20%, well and truly outpacing the market. Pretty flat really over the last month uh, and a little bit down over the last week, but it, uh, you, you can't win over every time period. Remember that uh, if you wanna dig deeper into that, you can see the address at the bottom of your screen, osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. I really encourage you to go and check that out. Let's have a look at what has been added recently. Well, as I just said, Objective Corp is going to be added uh, to this list uh, as of tomorrow. But we've also got Nick Scarly, A2 Milk, Illumina, Viva and CSL being added well, recently. Now I've got to correct myself there as well because CSL is actually going to get the boot after today, as I just said. Uh, so there you go. Um, gents, let's get into the back five. Rob, I'm going to start with you. And I said at the start of the, the program that we had a really high qu quality list of high caliber companies. Fisher and Paykel has got to be one of those, right? This is another business that has just gone from strength to strength to strength. Now, to be fair, probably getting a bit of an a bit of extra wind in its sails with COVID, giving the nature of their business yep. uh, that has pushed the shares up to a P of about forty-four or so. Yep. Uh, still good buying, in your opinion? Look, uh, it is a quality business. Uh, we actually recommended it uh, back in March. Uh, Nicely only, picked. Yeah, well, look, we only held it for about two weeks. Uh, it popped about 14%. We moved out of it. Um, so about $29 is where we exited the stock. Uh -huh. uh, it's moved a little bit higher since then. But uh, right now, we couldn't really get interested in it at these levels. The valuation just seems a bit too much. Um, we did see a demand spike during COVID. We think that's going to normalise. 
Um, you know, it has got currency risk, 45% of revenue being made over in North America as well. So I think um, it's probably just going to um, trade sideways here at best uh, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, once their uh, revenues and the EBITDA, we know exactly what that's going to be in a post-COVID environment. Uh, sure, we'll have a look at it again. Yeah. Um, look, their numbers were really, really spectacular. Um, last year, we had uh, their revenue was up 18%. EBITDA was up 23%. Net mm. profits up 37%. They even wow. pumped up their divvy by 18%. So yeah. it's a good quality business. It's really... Um, it's going to do well long term, but right now the valuation on it means we, we can't actually be a buyer at these levels. Owen, do you agree with that? It's certainly been a, a wonderful performer as we've just seen on the chart. Is it something you'd buy at this price? I think wind in the sales is, is a good way to put it, Andrew. I remember sitting in the emergency department at a hospital around about five years ago, more well, maybe four years ago, and uh, there was an investment club, the, the doctors, nurses and, and so forth had got an investment club together and one of the nurses jumped up and started pitching Fisher and Paykel. And mm. I thought, well, it looks a bit expensive. And lo and behold, four to five years later, look at what it's done. Um, I think it's a tremendous business. I probably made the, not a wrong call, but I probably thought it was the, the lesser two, the lesser quality of the two being ResMed, the other mm. one on yeah. the ASX. Um, I think Fisher and Paykel is a great business. I think that what we've seen during COVID, I think some of that will stay around. You know, um, selling into hospitals and also in home is very important. And I think people are going to be more sensitive um, and in need of these types of products going forward. And the consumables that are sold along with them um, are also valuable and and should not be, I guess, played down. I think one of the great things when you look at a company like Fisher & Paykel is you just look at that free cash flow and how fast it has grown over the past three years. That is brilliant because a company like Fisher & Paykel, it can take that free cash flow, it can keep it in the bank until it's ready to deploy um, expand manufacturing, it can um, make strategic acquisitions. I would be um, happy to take a small part, uh, it, small slice of this and put it in my portfolio. So I would say a buy. To your point earlier on, Andrew, it probably be a speculative buy just based on valuation. Yeah, okay, some nice comments there too. And I guess there doesn't always have to be a binary thing. You know, sometimes you can maybe throw a little bit in there with the, with the view of, of topping up if you so uh, get, if the market is kind enough to give you that opportunity. Uh, as I said before, a lot of subtlety and nuance in this game. Uh, oh, and I'm gonna stick with you. Now, let's talk about Magellan Financial Group. MFG is the code. Steve is the viewer who sent it in. We've actually had a few fundies uh, come up on the program in the past couple of weeks. And whenever they do, we've had some really interesting um, fund managers uh, come up, but people always mention, well, I like it, but Magellan is my preferred pick. So it seems to be a bit of a favorite amongst a lot of the experts that we have on the show. Is that your view on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to go past uh, Hamish and Magellan. Um, What they've done over the past 10 years has been nothing short of spectacular. I think, you know, we can look at it and we can say that Magellan's Global Fund has been absolutely outstanding in terms of um, its performance. And that obviously just leads to more farm, at least a higher management fees, better performance fees over time. But there comes a point in every funds management business and or in particular, the fund itself, when it reaches a, a tipping point um, where you probably need to be a bit more realistic with your assumptions. So when I've modeled this business out recently, I've just looked at management fees. I haven't taken into account a great amount of performance fees coming from particularly the, the global strategy within Magellan, um, just principally because it's getting so large now and, and the business needs other ways to earn that incremental dollar, I believe. 
But mm. one thing that I've underestimated when it comes to Magellan is the principal investments portfolio. We've seen some instances recently where Hamish and, and, and the management team have taken the taken the, the, the spotlight and shone it on some businesses that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to buy on a stock exchange and thought, well, why don't we develop that business and play a strategic role in that business? You know, we've got Baron Joey, which is the investment bank, uh, investment bank rather probably a throwback to Hamish's um, days before Magellan. Um, and I believe they're starting to fortify what they already have in place. They're moving some of the, the ETFs and, and the, um, the funds across to structures which will be more suited to locking in annuity cash flows for the business. So I really like Magellan, like all the stocks it seems on this on this call episode today, Andrew. Um, quite expensive, but I'd be happy to take a small slice, so it's a buy for me. So funny you mentioned that, Owen. Uh, we've, we've mentioned in a lot of the previous shows so far this year and even in December that we just had lots of thumbs down. Um, but yeah, I, this, is, this is probably, it's a different this show and probably testament to the, the stocks that have been sent in. Um, what do you reckon, Rob? The P is only 20 and, and yet the EPS have been well, pretty much doubled over the last three years or so. One of the concerns that people often have with these kinds of businesses is that they are wonderful when, to use the analogy again, the wind is in the sails. Rising markets, increasing fund flows, lots of performance fees, but by nature, these are cyclical businesses. Markets don't always go up. And when they go down, you get less funds under management, not just because your portfolio has fallen in value, but people tend to panic and take, take their money out as well. Yep. And, uh, and then you, know, you get the management fee, but you don't necessarily get the performance fee either. Uh, is that something to be mindful of? Yeah, I think um, one of the good things about this business and all the uh, fund management businesses is they typically report uh, quite regularly as to the inflows and outflows uh, of fund. Yep. So Magellan report uh, usually the first four or five business days into the new month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take the retail in inflows and outflows out of the out of the equation. Uh, unfortunately, you know we're finding people are getting hyped up and they'll put money in the markets. We keep an eye on the institutional flows. And what we've seen for Magellan, uh, there's only been two months uh, last year that actually saw institutional outflows. Now, one of those was in um, May. Now, um, surprisingly, when the market was going down and everyone's thinking, okay, well, the market's falling, uh, everyone's fearful, everyone's pulling money out of Mm -hmm. the market. Mm -hmm. Magellan actually saw a huge injection from institutions going into the market. So we discounted the fact that institutions then took money out in May Mm -hmm. uh, on the basis that they'd probably had a very good return picking the bottom of the market effectively. Um, Look, the the next time that they took money out of uh, Magellan was in November. Again, November was a really um, aggressive month for the market. returns that hadn't been seen you know for for generations 30 years or something i think it was a long one yeah um our thought on it is that yes it is a a high quality company Uh, it is our preferred name there uh it appears as though maybe the market's looking at magellan saying look um maybe the uh performance is a little bit too defensive focused uh maybe it's not being aggressive enough with the assets that it's holding and people are trying to get money back into the market looking for this very short, quick bounce up. Uh, and that's causing uh, Magellan to come under a little bit of pressure on the, on the share price. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at another company like Yanis uh, Henderson Group, um, oh, yes. which you know, did see uh, more outflows from institutions uh, during the first wave of COVID, uh, that's actually the share price is racing away at the moment. Uh, and again, it would appear as though during COVID, they want a defensive 
portfolio manager. So they've gone into Magellan. Now they think they're coming out of COVID. They're going into someone who might be a little bit more aggressive. Um, that being said, we still love the company. Um, you know, we had uh, double-digit increases in revenue, EBITDA, uh, last year. Net profit increased by 5%. Given the environment they had to go through, I think that's pretty good. Uh, and they even bumped up their uh, dividend by 16%. So, um, yeah, we would would be happy to uh, buy Magellan at these levels. There you go. Another one that's going to get going to get added to the portfolio. So Magellan, I've been mentioned quite a few times on the call and finally in the portfolio as of 4 o'clock this afternoon. Rob, let's talk Credit Corp. Let's talk uh, purchase debt ledgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier on this week, we had... Collection House come up on the show. Now that's had, uh, well, that was suspended for most of last year. Shares have not done well, let's face it. Um, But it's a very different story for Credit Corp. Credit Corp actually buying a bunch of Collection House's debt. And we surmised on the show probably got a very favorable deal. They're in a very strong negotiating position there. Um, They really have been the the debt management company to, to back in recent times. Is that likely to continue in your view? Yeah, I think they're moving into um, a phase of the economy globally uh, that's going to make it quite uh, beneficial for them. Uh, Interest rates uh, from many um, central banks have been touted to stay on hold for long periods of time moving forward. Um, That should enable consumers to get on top of their debts and not actually default. Uh, And if they do find themselves missing an odd payment here or there, um, being able to make it up and actually um, come to, to an agreement with a company like Credit Corp where you can negotiate your, your debts out. Mm. Um, you know, we saw their revenue tick up, we saw their EBITDA tick up. Um, we do note that they actually made, um, had some growth, about 34% uh, PCP versus um, you know, in the US as well. So they've got that yeah. uh, growth part of the business happening there. Um, the US now accounts for 10% of their revenue. Mm-hmm. So um, that is growing. I think by the time that they actually fully fledged that part of their business out, um, the weakening of the US dollar uh, from the stimulus package will probably have already have played out, mm-hmm. uh, in which case you actually could be a, a beneficiary of then uh, the US dollar strengthening yeah. uh, moving forward. So uh, we'd comfortably accumulate um, Credit Corp at these levels. Okay. Uh, Owen, uh, it's, it, is, it is a business that is very hard to get your head around and it's in, bizarrely enough got some really counter-cyclical properties. We saw how the market reacted just on the chart that was on screen when COVID hit. Obviously, people really worried that they're going to have trouble collecting a lot of debts. But on the other side of the equation, you've potentially got a lot of new debt that you can acquire and potentially at very favorable pricing. And this is really the nub of the issue for this kind of business. It is phenomenally profitable if, and this is the big if, if you are a very prudent purchaser of that debt uh, and you've got very good systems in place for collection. Um, They seem to have had that in the past. Is is it something that you consider today? Yeah, I think this is, that's the key, Andrew, with a business like this, Um, it's capital allocation. So what do they pay for the debt and how much do they get back from it? So I think principally what you should be focused on here is um, there's, a, there's a metric that they tend to report, which is collections per full-time employee or recovery officer. So you can, you can look at and see how you know, effective is the business at actually recovering that debt over time. Oftentimes, you know, you know in the case of Collection House uh, and the purchase that Credit Corp has made there, it can be pretty hard from the outside to know exactly you know, how th- this deal came to be, what are the terms, how profitable is this going to be? But management have provided guidance there. And that seems like a very prudent, timely acquisition of the, those uh, PDLs or purchase debt ledgers. 
So that's a good one. And so when you, when you think about capital allocation, it's much like um, judging an investor or a fund manager. You want to make sure that when you judge the capital allocation of that person, so be it the CEO or the, or the, the board of directors, what you want to look at is has that person been in charge of the business for quite some time? And one of the things that you'll notice about Credit Corp is that the management team is very stable. And so you look at the, the, the capital allocation over time, clearly it has been a beneficiary of, of Collection House's downfall, um, and it really has cemented itself as the number one um, purchase debt ledger business in Australia. So I would say, yes, it's um, very high quality business. And given that management have said, yeah, you know, there are going to be some one-off um, you know, one-off repayments and that might affect our profitability in the short to medium term. Um, the dividend's coming back, profit is, is guiding higher. So yeah, I'd say it's a buy. There you go. Another double thumbs up. Now this one uh, doesn't change anything for the portfolio because Credit Corp has been liked previously by other experts. So it's always good to get uh, a little bit of confirmation from, uh, from, from some fresh faces. And that's what we've got here. Credit Corp staying in the portfolio. All right, gents. Uh, I want Let's talk self-wealth. Uh, SWF is the code. Jürgen has written in. Now, this is a, a business that um, is, is really, I guess, fighting for market share from some of the big brokers. And they've done really, really well. In fact, it was only this week, uh, I believe, they came out with a, a trading update. Trade volumes up 377% year on year. It's hard to fault that. Operating revenue up about, let's call it 300% year on year. Now, there's a combination in there uh, uh, of, of people just trading more during COVID, but also uh, winning some more customers. Um, but then at the same time, the share price has had a good run. What do you make of it? Yeah, this is a business that caught our attention probably in the June quarter of last year. Um, because of COVID, we were seeing a huge influx of, of new investors and traders onto the ASX. And um, that being self-wealth bread and butter, it was actually winning share um, of new customers, but also of attrition. So customers that were shifting brokers, self-wealth was a beneficiary of that, which when you think about it, if you are with one of the big brokers in Australia, it's often, it takes a lot for you to move. And um, self-wealth's offering is mm. very simple, very transparent, you know, $9.50 per trade. Um, I think the big feather in their cap more recently, I spoke to Rod, uh, Rob Edgley recently, and um, he's the CEO, and um, the big feather in their cap recently has been um, getting that U.S. trading functionality off the ground. Um, you know, we've, they're, they're, they're dealing, I, I believe, with a backlog of ASX traders and investors who are looking to access U.S. markets through that platform. Um, indeed, myself, you know, I, I, I look for brokers that can offer both um, trading functionality in one platform, and now SelfWealth can do that. Um, turning to the financials, one of the, the great things about being an individual investor is you can use your imagination a lot. Um, you don't want to use it too much because it might lead you astray, but one of the great things is that you want to be able to see things that aren't there. And that sounds a bit weird. But let me hear me out for a second. But basically, when I look at the self-wealth business, I see a lot of broken revenue. So, you know, revenue that comes from clients transacting on the ASX or global markets. But self-wealth's business has actually grown beyond that. And they've got, you know, quite a substantial uh, number of people just on their mailing list. A lot of, a lot of accounts that are probably yet to be act actively trading, so are yet to be monetized. And there's also the ability to cross-sell. Um, I think some of the brokers have done a good job of that here in Australia. Some of the newer brokers are doing a better job of it. And I think once we see um, more subscriptions being sold through the platform, I think we'll see more of that new revenue um, from SelfWealth hitting the bottom line. And I think today's um, valuation will be justified. So for me, um, very small company, but a buy.
That's a, another buy. Um, you know, what was interesting, we spoke to the CEO as well, Rob, here on Ausbiz when those results came out. And he did also talk about the US trading uh, mm. thing as well. I know in, in former uh, roles that I've had working with brokers, it's always been a difficult sell to Aussie investors. We're very inward looking when it comes to our investments. Every expert under the sun will tell you, you need to have some offshore exposure, but a lot of us just don't do it. It looks as though yeah. SelfWealth is having a bit more luck on that front. Um, does that does that help make it more attractive for you? Yeah, look, I think they're, they're getting the benefits of a, a millennial, um, you know, user who's um, more comfortable trading online, uh, seeing uh, the information coming through the internet and just going, yep, I'll do that. Um, look, the business is really, it's like selling coat hangers. It's, 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 they have to sell to a large number of people for very low margins. Um, just to, sorry, just to interrupt you there too, does, does it seem as though that margin is narrowing too? It feels as though, my, like back when I started a million years ago, you'd pay $50 for even an online trade. Yeah. And now there's some out there that are doing five buck trades. Yeah. Uh, look, is that is this from a structural standpoint? Is that something to worry about, or is Owen's point? You know, maybe you've just got other offerings out there to sort of you know lift lift up or fill the gap. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that the um, senior management of this business will have to look at very closely as they move forward. Uh, if I can break down their current revenue, uh, I can say, tell you that the uh, trading revenue, so the brokerage they made, that made up 63% of their uh, revenue. Yep. But interest income made up uh, nearly 32%. So that's money that's sitting in a cash management account that the um, end user will use at some point in time mm -hmm. to go and buy shares, but isn't using at the moment. And so self-wealth are getting some kind of uh, a kickback from the financial institution on that. That's, now, that's particularly interesting given the likely interest rate that they're getting on that cash balance. Yes, yeah, so, so management's actually uh, indicated that uh, they believe there will be a shift from that money sitting in the savings into investing into the stock market. Now, if that money goes into the market as an investor, um, sure, they get a one-off payment on brokerage, but their margins on that is very low. They don't get the reoccurring um, income from the interest on that money. So they really need to make sure they're attracting the traders rather than the investors. Mm. So moving into the US market where uh, people may look to be a little bit more aggressive, maybe trading the, the NASDAQ and things like that, that would be beneficial for them. I've got a little bit of a concern at the moment that such a large amount of their income comes from uh, the interest income of mm -hmm. their business. So uh, I think they've recorded some great numbers. I think there's a couple of billion dollars now sitting um, you know, in their accounts. But um, if people shift to being investors rather than traders, um, then they're going to be operating on a very small uh, margin. Uh, I'd like to, as Owen said, I'd love to see them increase the uh, membership subscription uh, as far as the component that contributes to their uh, net revenue. Mm. Uh, there's obviously a lot more um, margin there in that part of the business, but you need to be adding value when you're selling a membership. So what is it exactly that you're getting for your subscription? Are you getting research? Are you getting valuable advice that you mm. can use and actually um, create a, a more a better performing portfolio? Mm. Very interesting, super interesting stuff. Let's get to the lucky last one of the day, Big Tin Can, uh, BTH is the code. Roy is the viewer that sent it in. It's got to win at least an award, uh, Rob, for one of, the, one of the more interesting names on the ASX. Yeah, great name. Uh, <laughs> um, look, it's, so it's cloud-based applications, um, basically to help users make uh, presentations and slide decks, particularly the collaborative presentations that are becoming more and more of a feature now that we've become a, a global society. Uh, I would just note that 91% uh, of the revenue comes from uh, the US, so uh, we've got some potential currency risk there. 
Um, they did recently acquire a company called Agnicio, I think mm -hmm. it is, mm -hmm. uh, for about three million bucks. Uh, that's going to give them exposure out to Europe, so that'll be good for their geographic footprint as well. Uh, currently, uh, everything outside of Australia and the US only accounts for uh, 3%. So that'll be good. Their revenues are, are ticking up, which is good to see. Um, that's what you need to see in a growing business like this. Um, we, we could be uh, drawn in to start accumulating the stock. You could be drawn in. I, I, I'm going to have to push you on this one. So, look, I, I think if you're prepared to take the risk, because it's, it's quite yep. high volatile, it's, it's definitely not a stock for every portfolio. Yeah. You know, if you're, um, you know, building up a, a self-managed super fund, you're looking at retirement, uh, maybe you've got one or two speculative names already in the portfolio, then mm -hmm. there's no room for this one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but if you're, you're young, you're, you know, in your 20s and 30s, and um, you've got some money that you can um, afford to lose, then uh, this has some huge potential. Potential uh, available to it. So, what we do like about an entry at these levels is that it has pulled back quite a long way. It was up about a dollar sixty. It's now about a dollar, yep. uh, and it's also sitting on that two hundred day moving average that I spoke about at the beginning of the show. Gotcha. So, we really do look at that as an institutional uh, level of support. Um, so, I think for people who are comfortable uh, buying a stock and then maybe selling it uh, for a loss uh, and taking that loss on and not letting that loss get very mm. big, mm. understanding that you don't get all the right when you start trading, mm -hmm. then this would probably be a good um, entry point in the stock. So okay. if you're a trader, sure, go for it here. You would probably have our stops just under a dollar. Uh, if you're an investor, it's probably too early for us to pull the trigger on this one. We need to see um, you know, a few things kind of uh, fall in place at the moment. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. So viewers, as, as we are fond of saying, context matters, and Rob's given you some very good context there. Owen, oh, uh, I've, I've run the clock down a little bit there. Sorry, mate. So maybe only a minute or so left uh, before we have to round things out. What do you think of Big Tin Can? I think this is... To Rob's point, yeah, it's a, a speculative company. Um, it's a pretty young company, even though it's and you know hasn't been listed that long. I would say, you know, if you can find five to ten of these businesses and you put a very small amount of money in them, you know, a, a smaller part of your portfolio, and you're willing to let them play out over five to ten years, then that's the context you need to invest in a company like this. Um, acquisitions seem to be part of its diet, so you'd want to take that into account when calculating things like free cash flow. Um, I would say very, very speculative buy, but maybe a hold for me. Okay, so that I might just pull up, unless you tell me otherwise, Owen, as a, as a double buy for the show. Sure, let's go with it. Okay, I don't, I don't want to lead you in, in any particular direction there, but I just, I just want to make sure that we're clear. Having said that, this has been, this is a bit of a red letter day for the core. We haven't had uh, this many buys in a long, long time. Before we go, let's do a quick recap of those final five shares. We started off with Fisher and uh, Paykel. What a wonderful business. Uh, Owen was a buy on that, although did sort of make the note that it would be a small position he would start off with. Rob, uh, similarly liked the business, but was just a hold at this point in time. Uh, we then went to Magellan Financial Group. This is a business, as I mentioned, very favorably mentioned uh, from many, many of our, our experts, and it got two thumbs up. It's in the portfolio as of today. Credit Corp was already in the portfolio and it's gonna stay there because it, it likewise got uh, the thumbs up from both Rob and Owen. Uh, a great history. Uh, things can sometimes be a little bit lumpy, but these guys know what they're doing when it comes to purchase debt ledgers. So happy to keep that in the portfolio. Self Wealth, uh, a business that has really done very, very well in its relatively short time. Uh, we've seen some very strong numbers come out recently. Uh, on, that, on that basis, 
Owen was uh, tempted to go yes, uh, looking more uh, towards the potential there of some of their subscription revenue that they might be able to, to garner. Rob uh, pointing out there that about a third of their revenue though comes from interest income and uh, as that gets put to work, uh, particularly if it gets put to work for people who like to buy and hold as opposed to people who like to trade a lot, that could be a bit of a headwind. And so for that reason, it was a no from Rob. One of the few uh, examples of where our two experts have disagreed, in fact, uh, on the show today. And then we ended up with Big Tin Can. It was a buy from Rob, but again, context matters. Uh, that was a, a, a very much a speculative approach. Owen made the excellent point that when you're looking at those kinds of companies, a basket approach makes a lot of sense. So even if you end up getting four out of five wrong there, you can still do really well if that, that one that remains is a 10 bagger or something like that, but you have to play it that way. We couldn't quite get him over the line though to add it into the portfolio. So that is our show for today. And it has been a really good one. I was very much looking forward to it, both in terms of the guests and the stocks. And uh, uh, I was not disappointed. Rob, it was great to uh, have you on the show. Thanks, Andrew. We'll see you me. again soon. Keep up the good work at Macro Capital. And uh, Owen, always good to see you, my friend, too. And uh, make sure all our viewers go check out the website at Rask Australia. Thanks, mate. Pleasure to meet you, Rob. And uh, thanks for the call today. It was Thank a great you. list of companies. Yeah, we'll definitely get both of you guys back on as soon as we can. But in the meantime, that is our show for today. As I said earlier, we can't do it without you. If you've got a suggestion, let us know. Uh, sometimes the same stocks tend to come up and up again. Give us some fresh blood, though, if you want something else to talk about. Fairly easy to do. Jump on Twitter. At uh, Ausbiz TV is the handle there, or email is the call at ausbiz.com.au. But that is our show until uh, 12 o'clock tomorrow when we do it all over again. But until then, don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.